This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. But it's also good to graduate and say, all right, you know, I own myself enough now yeah. to not feel that threatened by it. Yeah. You know, and I think that's an art. We don't know. There's no formula for no, that, right? It's no. just sort of like, all right, you encounter this feeling, you wrestle with it, and then you kind of learn, and you encounter another feeling, you wrestle with it, and hopefully in time, you yeah. wrestle better. <laughs> true, true. And I think it's very interesting what you just said. It's like how, you know, you're part of a community, which I was, then you go out there and find yourself, and then you go back to that community and you feel that you're autonomous enough to be able to, you know, live on your own, have your own values, but still be part and parcel of that community. And there comes a time when you're ready for that, yeah. which I told you maybe I'm not ready because I feel I'm scared of getting reabsorbed, yeah. right? Hi, I'm Ahmad Fuad Rahmat. Welcome to Night School, the show that explores theories, concepts and society. This week, we are going to talk about mourning, grieving, reinventing, basically the business of quote-unquote moving on from the past. And joining us to do that is novelist, also PhD candidate, Sabah Karim. Welcome back to the show, Sabah. Thank you, Fuad. <laughs> so, I know you're a bit taken aback when I asked you to talk about this, but <laughs> it's been on my mind and I, I feel like there are things that maybe I want to think out loud about uh, and I figured that you might be someone who could share insights or experiences that might resonate with the whole question of grieving and mourning, you know, because from what I gather, you've, uh, you've transformed and reinvented a lot thinking about tradition against tradition in a very globalized setting. So yeah. when, you know, when I think about you, I think about those sorts of challenges, you know, so mm-hmm. that's why I asked you to join us. Okay, that would be very interesting. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your background then. I mean, you're a novelist here in KL. Yes. You've published two, at least here, based on your time here. Yeah. But you're from Mauritius. I'm from Mauritius. Right, so tell us a little bit about that journey. How did you end up here? Okay, so I left Mauritius when I was 18 to come here in Malaysia. And I have been here for, a, well, for nearly 15 years now. And uh, it's very interesting every time I go back home. It's always a time for me to think about how I've changed, how I've grown, how I've transformed. I prefer the word transformed. Grown is probably, I think, underrated. How I've transformed. And now when I, for example, when I went back recently, there were these questions of what was I like before? Mm -hmm. And now the memories are fading And I don't remember anymore, for example, the differences between little things like what I used to consider to be, let's take dress, for example, Mm -hmm. something very superficial. But it could also be culture. It could also be mannerisms. It could also be, you know, behavior, general Mm -hmm. behavior in society. So I long ago would still have a connection between what I would consider to be in Mauritian standards. According to Mauritian standards, I would know what is considered to be decent mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and what's indecent. Whereas when you when I've been here in KL for so long, my notion of decent and indecent has become very Malaysian. Right, right. So there's always this gap, if you want, between trying to find myself and trying to understand, uh, trying to adapt to local norms, you yeah. know, whenever I go back. Yeah. Because when you... If I were to stick to, let's say, a typical, a completely Malaysian way of being when I'm back in Mauritius, I would probably uh, feel very lost and I would probably feel that I'm not 
fitting in mm-hmm. to the society over there. Yeah. And I think everybody wants to fit in to a certain extent. To a certain extent. To an extent, yeah. yeah. Now, what was the initial thought process like? Because, you know, I assume leaving at 18, a world which you had in a lot of ways, you know, become familiar with, right, in, in such deep dimensions, right? Because that's who you were for 18 years. And then you come to a totally different culture here. It must have been a difficult thought process, or maybe it wasn't. So tell us a little bit about what compelled you to leave and eventually why did you choose Malaysia and the negotiations that you had in your mind about what to expect and, you know, how to deal with the confusions? Ah, that is such an interesting question. Um, Well, I like that word, negotiations. I think there were many negotiations made along the way. I think in the initial stages when I came at 18, you tend to be very protective about your own values. So you don't want to get absorbed into the new stream of culture, of norms, of habits. And obviously, you tend to stick to your own kind, you know, for a while. Even if it's not about the people, it's about your own your own culture, your own norms, right? You think that they are safe. And I think it's only after I started to work over here, that's after the period I was a student, after university, that's when I started to realize that it was necessary to give up some of the values and the norms that I had grown used to because they would not work in this setting and that, in fact, they would isolate me and they would probably, um, well, simply, they wouldn't work without going into details. Can you give me an example of that, that negotiation? what you had to leave behind in order to adapt? Uh, For example, I think we are quite reserved in Mauritius. Ah. We are not as warm as Malaysians. Right, right. We tend to be, and I think I'm not speaking just from personal experience. I think a lot of my friends who've been here can testify to have to, to I'd feel say the that same, way. yeah. A lot of uh, observers from the outside, so to yes. speak, can, they can see that Malaysians tend to be warmer. Yeah. Yes, they are warmer. I think, uh, well, there are different reasons for explaining why I think Mauritians are generally more reserved. Uh, well, cold is is another uh, another adjective, but I would say reserved, sure. yes. It's probably, well, some like to joke and say it's probably our French influence, mm-hmm. yeah. But I don't know. I think it's very simplistic to put it down to that. Sure, sure. I would just say that this was a big difference and I realized that if I were to get along with people, I would have to become more relaxed. And when I, I think I went through that transformation, things got easier for me, mm-hmm. socially speaking. Yeah. yeah. But there are two different ways to think about that in a sense where on one hand, it's just a fact of age in a way that you're, you know, as you age, you're just ready to change, right? Um, but on the other hand, it's also maybe forced by the fact that you're in a new country, and in order to just get basic things done, you need to know people, right? And so how difficult was that? I think in my case, it was not just... Uh, what you just mentioned makes a lot of difference, yes. It had a big impact, but I would think that there was also the element of I wanted to go through a very big transformation in my life in terms of, you know, my religious values, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. I thought there was a lot of reassessment, re-questioning, that was needed for me to adjust to this new life I wanted to lead. And I think leaving Mauritius in that sense was very important because, you know, when you're tied to society, when you have a certain identity in society back there, you find it very difficult to become a new person, Mm -hmm. especially if you want to become that new person. And I knew exactly what I wanted to become. I knew exactly what sort of transformation I wanted to undergo. And I knew that that transformation, I mean, literally, I remember 
standing at the edge of this abyss mm-hmm. and realizing that from now on, everything I do is going to change. Mm-hmm. Everything I thought about before, the people I chose to mingle with before, what I decided to read, to write, the manner in which I, I decided to keep myself busy, everything would change. Right. And so this was a very conscious decision to transform. It did not happen, I think, gradually right. for me. It happened over, not overnight, but you know, quite rapidly. In quite drastic ways quite drastically. too, right? Yeah. Now, that's the thing too. I think everybody's been at that crossroads where they feel like it's time to change, right? But they're so tied to a certain way of looking at things that they're daunted. They don't want to take the extra step. They don't want to look at the abyss, you know, yeah. <laughs> because... As much as we like to think that, you know, in a globalized world, things change quickly and we can always evolve and develop and stuff like that. There's an aspect of change when it matters most that is always, always very, very scary. So what what was your emotional resource like, right? Because you come from a francophone world. It could have just been Paris where it wasn't religious, right? And you mm-hmm. come to Malaysia, which is another quote unquote country mm-hmm. in the global south. Mm-hmm. where it's struggling with its own identity issues, mm-hmm. right? So it seems like, t- one, it was a difficult unmooring, right, mm-hmm. from your sort of more traditional world. But two, it wasn't an easy place to pick. You could have just gone to New Zealand or something, yeah, you know? Yeah, you so you mean. come into a whole different mix of complications yeah. in Malaysia, right? And yeah. uh, we have our own identity issues that we're true, still trying to true, work through. True. So tell us a little bit about A, how difficult that process was, and B, what were, what were your emotional resources? If you're doing it alone, you know, um, and you're not necessarily religious, so what were the values that you turned to in order to cope with that transition? I think during my transformation, being in Malaysia was very far from being a problem. Because I was faced with those pertinent questions, let's say those Muslim questions, about eating, drinking, about entertainment, about all these, you know, very hot topics, right? Yeah, especially Which as a teenager dealt- too. Yes, those yes. were the things that mattered, yeah. yeah. And these were dealt with by the media and, you know, you were forced to confront them. Whereas in Mauritius, where we we're a, still we we're a minority, right, as a Muslim population, we didn't have to have these questions in our face. Mm-hmm. So when I was here, the great thing was I had to face these questions and I had to do my own research to find my own answers, which is what at first got me closer to religion and after all the questioning got me further away. Right, right. And I think therefore being here was more of a boon rather than a handicap. Right, right. And uh, I think, how did I cope? How did I cope with all that? What were my emotional resources? You asked. Well, I think I've always believed that we come up with a range of coping mechanisms, and the only way, and coping mechanisms could be in the form of, let's say, religion. It could be in the form of uh, believing in, uh, well, yeah, in various facets of various tenets of religion, various tenets of, you know, culture. And I think the way I basically took care of myself or protected myself was by believing in the need to become strong Mm -hmm. and to rid myself of all the possible coping mechanisms that human beings resort to. Yeah, and they can Um, be a lot of unhealthy ones too. They're very unhealthy ones. And I'm not saying that I don't have any coping mechanisms. I think that would be uh, very idealistic. But I think I tried to get rid of as many as I could 
so as to become stronger. And yep. it was all this belief, this continuous belief that I could do it, that I was strong and I didn't need coping mechanisms to continue that helped me, if you want, to cope yep. with everything. In that sense, you're quite lucky in that, you know, by now I'm 36 and I've, you know, you have seen enough friends. I think most people have encountered enough people in their lives where the transformation they want to make either doesn't work or they feel a lot more isolated or they feel lost uh, because, you know, it's a very violent process when you actually say, I don't want my old self and I want to create a new self, right? I want new ideals. I want a new way of looking at the world. And it's a nice thought because you're so suffocated by your old self that anything other than that sounds like appealing, right? But when you actually start walking into that abyss, you realize, oh, there are lots of new questions I don't have answers to you know I can't really rely on the old narratives anymore I can't really rely on my old set of friends anymore right and that's when you start seeing that you know they begin to unravel or they start transforming in drastic ways that are very unhealthy and stuff like that so I always wonder about that a lot if we really believe in the sort of ideals of cultivating the self right you know Mm -hmm. the kind of liberal arts humanity sort of ideals of Mm -hmm you know, flourishing and stuff yeah. like that. There's always risk involved, but Absolutely. not everybody has the resilience to go through that risk, right? True. So in that sense, you're very lucky that you realize, you, you know, you were very good Nietzschean. You said, I got to face this <laughs> head on and find my strength, right? Yeah. And you have produced two works since then and you've managed. But I wonder then what separates people who do manage and those who actually basically get eaten alive by that process. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, Fouad, what is very interesting is I realized that while I was transforming or when I was becoming what I wanted to become, there was always a danger that I would become a superficial other. Mm -hmm. You know, because just as I thought I was a superficial one, Mm. I was scared I would become a superficial other in my process of transformation. And I actually was lucky enough to witness that around me, to see people who had, let's say, transformed in the way I wanted to transform in the direction, but had turned into zealots, Mm -hmm, you know. mm -hmm. And uh, when you turn into a zealot and you go around, for me, what's a zealot? A zealot is someone who goes around trying to, if you want, propagate his or her beliefs to others and tries to like transform other people, which I don't believe in. And this could be religious or non-religious, right? Exactly. You have atheistic zealots as well. Yes, yeah. you have atheistic zealots who go around trying to transform people to their thought process. Mm-hmm. And I think that is quite silly, mm-hmm. <laughs> to put it in very simple words. Yeah. It's and very it, it silly seems because... Like it comes out of a place of loneliness too, that you have to convert someone to your worldview in order yes. to feel like purpose you know to find a purpose yeah. and to feel that you're in a way it's trying to convince yourself that what you've done is right yeah. if you yeah. go around trying to convert others to what you think yeah. and i always thought that i would never in my in my work you know uh, of course people may disagree with me but i think i try not to touch too much on let's say religion mm-hmm. because it's a very sensitive topic and i also believe whatever the case may be that i believe in the darkest periods of my life religion acted as a pair of crutches mm-hmm. i will never never forget get that. And I think it gave me a direction. And uh, this is what I believe. I believe that when you're lonely, when you've, let's say, been let down by the world, so to speak, you feel that religion is very convenient for you to turn to. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, with God, you don't need to explain and give justifications. Mm -hmm. And you feel he's the closest being to you. He's closest to your heart and he understands, you know. Uh, And I think in that sense, I think it's very important that whatever philosophy, whatever way of life we adopt, is very important to keep it to ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
Thanks for these insights, Sabah. Let's take a break and we'll continue on this question of finding yourself amidst moving on, right? Grieving, uh, mourning in the name of transformation. I'm Ahmad Fa'ar Ahmad. Joining us this week is Sabah Karim, novelist and uh, a guest on the show before. This is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, you're listening to Night School. I'm Ahmad Fa'ar Ahmad. Joining us this week is Sabah Karim a novelist living here in KL, but she is originally from Mauritius. And we're talking about moving on, getting over, transforming, but also grieving along the way. And she's been a great resource to think through these things, largely because of her experience moving here at 18 from Mauritius and trying to find a new her, I guess. So uh, what is it like going back then? Because I know that you do visit home. And like you said earlier on, there are all these jarring differences that you Mm -hmm. encounter, right? Memories, they are fading, flashbacks and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. paint a picture about the experience. It's a very interesting process going back home. And what has always marked me is uh, very well described by Milen Kundera, the author, in his book called Ignorance. I'm going to quote you know, an extract from his book. So this is when he's talking about the people you know, who live in the country that is home. And he describes them as they nattered on about things that had happened during his absence, eager to answer any question he might have. Nothing bored him more. He was waiting for just one thing, for them finally to say, tell us. And that is the one thing they never said. Now, what he's referring to, what Milan Kundira is referring to, is this journey of the protagonist who goes back home and who wants to talk about his own experiences. And he's waiting for them to ask, to tell him, tell us. But they're not interested in what he has gone through. They're not interested in making the most of that richness of his experiences. What they want is for him to ask them, what has been going on in your country? What's been going on at home? Right. And he's not really interested in that. So the whole journey is about how this person feels that he has lost those years, let's say 20 years that he has been abroad, because no one's really concerned with that. And Mm -hmm. if he were to go back home, people would not expect him to have transformed. People would expect him to conform to their own traditions, their norms, and he would feel as if they haven't moved. Mm -hmm. And that is the worst part of the journey of going back. And that's something I have always always, always experienced, not just vis-a-vis relatives, but also friends and the people that you meet over there. Yeah. I wonder though, and I, I get what you mean, there's, a, there's this, you're estranged, right? You're yes. no longer a part of that world and it doesn't help that they're not trying to reach out and, and try to understand sort of the disconnect that yeah. you're feeling. I wonder though if that's necessarily a bad thing in a way because the reason for moving on to begin with is that there's always been a disconnect anyway and that you're coming back not necessarily to feel totally absorbed but maybe to feel that gap Mm -hmm. how does that gap feel again right so this is sort of the way I think about the times I've come and and come and left Mm -hmm. at some point I realized well they're not going to necessarily know the things I've gone through Mm -hmm. but I do sense that given the gap that still exists the gap doesn't feel the same anymore you know Mm -hmm. I can feel the gap the sort of void, quote-unquote, yeah. in a different way. In a way, I appreciate it more, right? Because that reminds me of the journey I've had to carve, for example. True, right? True. Yeah. And you know what? I think I totally understand what you're saying. But you know, my fear 
when I feel that gap, which helps, let's say, in writing, because you feel disconnected from society, it really helps in writing, <laughs> you know. But, you know, my fear is that if I stay too long there, I'm going to get absorbed back in mm-hmm. and I'm going to lose everything that I ever got by being abroad for so long. And that's a fear which I've been very cognizant of every time I have gone back. Because if you get reabsorbed into the stream of things over there back home, then you will not be able to enjoy... There's a French word called se dépayser, you know? which means to feel out of place, to feel estranged. Mm-hmm. But I, I like that word, dépaysé, uh, because it's pays, pays means country mm-hmm. and dépaysé means you mean to decountrify it sort right, of thing. Right. And I feel that losing that would mean that all the effort I have put in to be a different person, to adjust to different cultures, especially you have to remember that I think in Malaysia, I'm exposed to more diversity mm-hmm, in terms mm-hmm. of people and all that. We're not just talking of Malaysians coming in and of out. Of course, course. It's very cosmopolitan. And, yes, yeah, yeah. and I think compared to Mauritius, it is relatively more cosmopolitan. So I'm always afraid of leaving that uh, behind, of losing that. And it would definitely affect, I think, the breadth in which I operate when I'm writing. Yeah, I appreciate that too, because I think, like you said, that the alienation is a source of creativity. It is. You know, uh, and not necessarily artistic creativity, but even forcing someone to redefine their values. Yeah. You know, like what what is it are you about, right? If you're not at home here and you're not at home there, you're just not at home, then this is a chance for you to think about who you really are, right? I think Absolutely. that's a really good productive moment for people to kind of encounter but at what point does it become misanthropic? You know, at what point does community therefore then just become a threat, right? Because I'm worried about that because as much as alienation is interesting, and I think it is in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. we can graduate to questions about like, okay, how do you articulate this well? How do you articulate this poorly, right? Which yeah. is interesting yeah. to me. But as much as that discussion is very, very fascinating, I'm very worried about how at times it can just be very anti-community or very, very like misanthropic, right? Yes, you, you, yes. And then that makes it hard to form bonds, that makes it hard to form connections, mm-hmm. and then you have a different set of problems there, right? True, true. I think uh, the first reaction or response I had when I started reading Nietzsche, and I noticed this in absolutely everyone I know who was absorbed by Nietzsche's works, is that we all, we've all gone through our period of misanthropy. All of us. Of course, of course. And it's amazing how it isolates you, how it breaks all bonds you have with society, where you really feel that you're powerful just being on your own. And then afterwards comes the depression, where you realize that you need to have people around you. And then you start, let's say, getting reabsorbed very slowly into society, where you keep a friend or two friends and you think you're self-sufficient. And then you realize that's not enough. You need more. You need superficial friends and you need deep friends (laughs) and you need friends for coffee and all of that. And I think, I think I've come to a point now where I feel, again, it's important to evolve from Nietzsche as well. Remember, exactly, exactly. Nietzsche said that he doesn't want little yeah. followers. He wanted people to become autonomous. I think there comes a point where you reach, let's say the word, I don't like the word equilibrium and balance, but let me say it. There's a balance that you must, you know, sort of insert in your life where I think I reached mine, where I realized that a lot of what Nietzsche preaches is really about protecting yourself from hurt. And I think that it is also important 
to make sure that you don't shy away from taking risks. Yeah. Because relationships, you know, friends or otherwise, friends, love, whatever, they're all about exposing yourself to the risk of getting hurt. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people like Nietzsche, who want to be strong all the time, would have done, if you want, the ideal thing of isolating them from society, from relationships, just so as not to get hurt. Yeah. And I think living like that, and although they claim to have done the strong thing, I think it's weak. Yeah. Because yeah. I think it's kind cowardly to to defend yourself because I think the best emotion, well, personal thought, the best emotion one can experience in life is falling in love. Mm. And I think if you were to, you know, isolate yourself, insulate yourself from all that, you'd be losing out on a lot that yeah. is valuable in life. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's always about what sorts of pains are worth it, quote unquote, right? Because you, and this is a Nietzschean insight that I gather there's always going to be pain, but not all pain is suffering necessarily, or maybe not all suffering is senseless, right? So the question is, in the choices we make, given that we can't avoid frustration and disappointment and hurt, how do we think about that journey in such a way that we choose ultimately the labours of love, right? What is worth suffering for, (laughs) right? Yeah, that's right. um, And like you said, I think there's this romanticisation of loneliness too, where, where they recoil completely, Mm-hmm. And they think by not needing others, they're becoming strong. Which I, I think it's a very dangerous way to think about that, right? Because Absolutely. you're digging a deeper hole inside, right? And it's not necessarily much there other than your fears and your past hurts and stuff like that. One of the things that's helped me a lot in appreciating all this is, is really aging. Mm-hmm. You know, because I feel that, first of all, relatives, friends or people around you or their parents, they're getting more ill or mm-hmm. they're, they're passing on. Yeah. And then you confront these moments of, you know, the temporariness of things, not mm-hmm. just, you know, people, but just your existence in general. And you start thinking about what are the choices that you make, that you need to make in order to make the most out of the time you have, right? Mm-hmm. And how do you do it in such a way that is not bound by fear, mm-hmm. right? Because it's easy to panic and go to those crutches. It's easy True. to panic and go to those easy answers, right? Yeah. But now you're at a crossroads where you go, all right, these are vulnerabilities I've never encountered, yeah. but I don't want to panic, yeah. right? Yeah, I want to make the right decision in such a way that I'm fair to myself too, right? Yeah. And again, it goes back to what are the values and resources that you've made. So by that time, hopefully you've learned a few things yes, <laughs> that yes. you can therefore make yeah. the right calls, right? True, true. I think it is uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau who spoke about how some of us claim that we're not scared of death, Right. And he said that's a big lie. He said everyone is apprehensive of death. And I think even those of us who don't resort to coping mechanisms Mm -hmm. to face death or to understand death still feel that fear, that apprehension. And I think we have the same feelings as everybody else where when we are faced with a parent or a loved one who is not well, we do understand what the repercussions are of dying, of death. And, you know, speaking of this, I remember... When I first started my process of transformation, I was questioning rites and rituals in my society, in my community, where I remember the death of a young girl and she died, uh, you know, out of a condition, a disease that she was suffering from. And I remember everybody who was there involved in the rites and rituals in that ceremony, the funeral, was more interested in whether it was right to uncover her face, whether one could look at Mm -hmm. her face or not. And everyone was curious. You know, everybody's curious about looking at the face for some reason. 
And everybody got carried away by that question right. as to who said what about whether it's allowed right, or not, right, right. that the whole process of mourning was actually lost. And yep. this was a death which had affected a lot of people, of course. And I remember at that time frowning upon, you know, rites and rituals because they took away, if you want, the truth or the beauty or the real essence of dying. And today I feel somewhat differently about that because I've also acquainted myself with, you know, societies where there are no, virtually no rites and rituals for yeah. mourning, for the funeral process. And I realize what they complain about is that they don't know how to deal with death yeah. so yeah. that they suffer more in the process. You know, that yeah. is basically mourning, grieving process is longer, it's more tedious. And when people go to these processions, to these ceremonies of death, they don't know how to behave. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, again, it is important not to get carried away if one is going through any process of transformation in the sense of don't reject everything that you were. Yeah. Because what you were, what I was, Fouad, was also very, very important. And I do not wish ever to deny the beauty that existed, or that exists rather, in those system-based environments of course, of course. that helped one cope better with, you know, loss, with death, with loss of every type. Yeah. What happens with loss is that you lose a person or an ideal or a place that was really definitive for who you are. So when you're mourning somebody who's passed, you're really mourning a part of you that used to be defined by that person or used to be reached by that person, right? So this is where, like you said, a lot of those quote-unquote rituals, the basic insight they have, despite all their problems, is that grieving is better with others. Yes, that's a basic that's claim that they have, which yeah. I think does wonders. Absolutely. Then for those who have to really grieve alone, and there's nothing more crippling than that, the fact yeah. that you've really lost this person who was so valuable to who you are. True. And you no longer recognize yourself, but you have to walk that journey alone. It's very, very devastating. And I know people who've managed, but oftentimes at a cost. They, yeah. they never come out as robust as before or as the same, you know. True, true. So I think you're right. That insight that you have is about the art of rejecting, right? Mm -hmm. We can't, there's this sort of like panic, scrambling rejection of the past, yeah. which I think is good to feel at a certain <laughs> age, but it's good to get over too. You can't Absolutely. apply that same energy to all different things, right? No, because no. maybe you need it at that time to salvage a part of you that you, you really feel is at threat. And there's a reality to that, right? Because community has an ugly side. Mm -hmm. It makes you conform. It forces you into certain morals that you don't want. Yeah. But it's also good to graduate and say, all right, you know, I own myself enough now yeah. to not feel that threatened by it, yeah. you know? And I think that's an art. We don't know. There's no formula for no, that, right? It's no. just sort of like, all right, you encounter this feeling, you wrestle with it, and then you kind of learn and you encounter another feeling, you wrestle with it. And hopefully in time, yeah. you wrestle better. <laughs> true, true. And I think it's very interesting what you just said. It's like how, you know, you're part of a community, which I was, then you go out there and find yourself. And then you go back to that community and you feel that you're autonomous enough to be able to, you know, live on your own, have your own values, but still be part and parcel of that community. And there comes a time when you're ready for that, yeah. which I told you maybe I'm not ready because I feel I'm scared of getting reabsorbed, yeah. right? Now, this reminds me of Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse. Siddhartha, the journey of this man, this boy, this Brahmin boy, who left his home. I mean, he was perfect in his studies, in learning the rites and rituals, in learning how to be a 
perfect priest, right? Mm-hmm. He left home and he went out there. And if you remember, he went through all sorts of adventures and misadventures where he entered into various business transactions. He lived with a prostitute for a long time. He had a child with her. He had to learn how to manage the child. And finally, after that long journey of life, he actually went back home. Mm-hmm. And that is what I think is uh, probably a very good summary of what we have just been talking about. Yeah. You know, that story, that journey of life. And I think it's Maybe important, I would not say, again, I don't believe in forcing any solutions to life, to the existence of other people. But I think that's a very good, probably a very good way of getting to know oneself and then of being ready enough then to go back to one's past, to to go back to one's home. Yeah, Um, no, I think that's really well put in that the whole point is to feel at home, not at a literal home, but Mm -hmm. with yourself, at home with yourself, you know, Uh, not necessarily getting into you know, apologetics for culture or whatever. Yeah. But uh, So that fact- means there's still a chance I might stay in Malaysia. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, they're both sort of mutually informing each other, right? Exile yeah. is informed by a certain idea of home and home yeah. is informed by a certain idea of exile, yeah. right? And, and I've been on this journey with a couple of other friends, you know, mm-hmm. from when we were young teenagers and we really felt disconnected mm-hmm. from quote-unquote culture or whatever. And uh, we've all had to take our own journeys. But mm-hmm. it's interesting that we all make that U-turn for different reasons at different times, mm-hmm. which tells me that there's no real reality of how bad it is. It's all mm-hmm. about how you feel yeah. and you know the different moments and different manifestations of that problem. Yes, you know, absolutely. Th- so sometimes people make blanket claims about how terrible tradition is something and I, I'm very, very sceptical of that. Absolutely, you know, me because too. Because it's all about how you had to make those divorces yeah. and it's, you're really negotiating with the way you left rather than that world itself, you know. True, true. And I think there is a lot of... I think one does not realise that we are exposed to a lot of literature that is Mm anti-communal. And we tend to get carried away by this notion of celebrating the individual Mm -hmm. life or individualism. And it's only when we start exposing ourselves to literature, if you want, I wouldn't say Asian literature, (laughs) that sounds like blanket as well. But I would say when we start looking at the other side of the argument or when we grow up, when we mature, (laughs) that's when we, I think, realise that there is, we have to look at both sides of the the coin. We're agreeing a lot and that's great, but I'm I'm trying to figure out uh, our differences. (laughs) No, in that, I wonder if this is like, just another long-winded conservative excuse to come back home. You know what I mean? Like, Because yes. I think there's something good about the critique of power yeah. that got the whole journey to begin with, yeah. right? Yeah. Because there's hierarchies there that are random yeah. and there are people who abuse those hierarchies. And that's the instinct that made us want to leave. It's yeah. actually very loyal to that problem, right? Yeah. We, this is a problem. I don't want a part of it and I want to create myself. I think there's something very powerful about that. Yeah. You know, so I, I do want to problematize coming home too. In okay. Sense, well, I, I'm perfectly so. fine and I totally understand <laughs> you, but this is what I have to say to you. Do you remember at the beginning of this session, we talked about how I think there's certain coping mechanisms we should keep? Yes, yes. <laughs> so I think there you go. This is maybe one of the coping mechanisms I would think are probably is probably essential to my life in the sense of believing 
that maybe we are just trying to justify mm. why we have to go back home. Right, you know, right, we're trying right. to say, well, we have to look at the other side of the coin. Right, right. We have to try to say that, oh, well, you know, you can't just reject one philosophy and turn to the other. This is just a coping mechanism. Yes, <laughs> yes that's <laughs> we're true. We're paving the way for us to go back home, that's basically. True. Yeah. But I'll, I think you're right in that there's a moment before, you know, the side of you that's very... That has a big picture and the side of you that's defensive. There's that gap. Yes. And I think you got to be loyal to that gap, not yeah. either side. Because the side of you that has a big picture is going to change too. Yeah. And the side of you that was before from that home, you know, that, that you long for that sense of security is also romanticized sometimes, right? Absolutely. So it's that, in that between space is very important. True, you know, true. That, that we don't just jump on one side or the other very fast. But we have to wrap up now. It's always a pleasure, Sabah, just talking to you same about here, these things. Same so here, we'll, we'll have you over again for another Thank discussion. Thank you very much. But Tell us a bit about what you're working on. Maybe there's projects that we can Google or look up to know more about uh, your work. So I have just uh, my a story I wrote recently called Plan Vert was uh, recently launched at the Commonwealth Summit in London. And it is part of an anthology of stories from all the Commonwealth islands in the world. So there were 500 entries and 17 stories were chosen. Wow. And mine's from, well, my story's from Mauritius. And the story Plan Vert is about a 16-year-old girl who's engaged and she's trying to find herself. Wow, okay. And um, other than this, I'm finishing, I'm completing my PhD, Wonderful. which is on the Khmer Rouge and on war crimes tribunal. And philosophically, it's on this topic which interests absolutely everyone who starts to read philosophy, which is on good and evil. Interesting. And uh, I shall be completing, I should be completing this, the PhD this year. All the best. Thank Sabah, you very you're much. also the author of Semi Apes, which Semi-Apes. they can get uh, at major bookstores here. Uh, you can email the show, bfmnightschool.gmail.com. Look us up on Facebook as well. Type that in the search space. And also download our app at the Apple App Store. Once again, I'm Ahmad Farahmat. And we had Sabah Karim on the show to talk about mourning, grieving, self transformation. And it's Night School on BFM 89.9, the business station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.